At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Well, let's listen now to God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land, and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. For he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord like the splendor of the meadows shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by Him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with His hand. I have been young And now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree, yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found." Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off, 
but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, this evening we'll be taking up the theme from this morning as we continue contemplating this great decision that is set before the state of Michigan in less than a month's time as Proposal 3 comes before us on the ballot representing this Reproductive Freedom Act that as we saw this morning in, essentially is an act of flagrant disobedience and rebellion against the Lord our God. Granting every individual a fundamental right to reproductive freedom, including but not limited to sterilization, which involves sex change surgeries, things of this nature, abortion care, and many other things. Uh, We saw that the, the ambiguous and broad language of this proposed amendment to our state constitution involves uh, an individual's right to reproductive freedom that shall not be denied, that it's guaranteed for every individual. Uh, It says it shall not discriminate. In other words, even age discrimination would be forbidden, so children would now have the freedom to consent to perverse things that previously would have been would have fallen under statutory rape, pedophilia. It opens the gates, the floodgates of iniquity for all kinds of legal arguments in defense of perversion. But in a sense, worst of all, or the thing we're focusing on most of all, is this granting of a fundamental right to murder babies, to shed innocent blood. Uh, We're told that in no circumstance shall the state prohibit an abortion that in the professional judgment of an attending healthcare professional is medically indicated to protect the life or physical or mental health of the pregnant individual. And so, if there's any pain or sorrow or suffering, things that the Bible says due to sin are inherent in the pregnancy process, uh, if there's anything that in any way threatens uh, the woman's uh, physical or mental health in any way, they can murder their baby. And so this would expand uh, the right to abortion in the state of Michigan to the point where even up till the very moment of birth, babies can be murdered. But of course, we're concerned with every child from conception. And so we saw this morning that the Lord confronts us with the wickedness of this proposal do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Jeremiah 44, verse 4. We saw that. And we considered the great destruction that is being uh, set before us here. And our duty to actively and lawfully oppose it. But this evening, we're going to be focusing on a very different question. A very different aspect of this entire issue. This morning we saw that Proposal 3 is evil. It's abominable. It's wicked. It's it's an offense against God. It is cruel and destructive of human life. Children that bear the image of God. But this evening we're going to ask the question, though we try to oppose this with everything we've got, though we vote against it, though we warn other people about the facts concerning this proposal, though we do everything in our power to oppose it, if it is adopted, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? If Proposal 3 is adopted, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that in the providence of God if that happens? And to that end, we're considering... Psalm 37, specifically verses 28 and 38. Verse 28, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Verse 38, 
Second half of the verse, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. So verse 28, the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. Now David wrote Psalm 37 near the end of his life, as you can see quite clearly in the text. He says, verse 25, I have been young and now am old. It's a psalm of David. He says, I've been young, now I'm old. So he's the king. He's reflecting on his experience throughout his life. And he writes this near the end of his life to encourage God's people when they find themselves in the midst of a wicked, unjust, and hostile society. He's saying, I've lived through that. He lived through the wicked reign of King Saul who in rebellion against God, in disobedience time and time again, and eventually uh, persecution of God's anointed David, we see King Saul acting out this wickedness, prospering, ruling and reigning for 40 years. And David lived through much of that reign of the wicked King Saul. So David is writing this as one who's come to live through this experience. And he has encouragement for us. And it's really the same for us, is it not? In in principle, we live in the midst of a wicked and hostile society. Nowhere near what others are experiencing in other places in the world. Perhaps not as bad as David experienced. But in principle, we see the wicked prospering and we need to deal with this issue. We need to deal with this problem that is set before us. And David provides us with that encouragement in Psalm 37. Look at verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. You can see in verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. So the wicked are prospering in their evil schemes because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. So David's living early in his life in a context where wicked people, corrupt people, bloodthirsty people are prospering. They're getting away with it. They're seemingly living it up in their wickedness and in their hostility to the true people of God. Well, David is encouraging us here to respond in the right way. I said, what would you do if proposal 3 passed? Well, David gives us instructions here. He says, verse 1, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated by the wicked when they prosper. Don't be envious of them. Don't say, well, I wish I could be in their position. And then we begin to utilize their strategy, their game plan, their lawlessness, their violence. Their foolishness. No, we don't envy them. We don't want to be imitators of them. We're not intimidated by them. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Overcome evil with good. Put your trust in the Lord. Place your confidence in the Lord. Don't be sagging down with discouragement. But be confident. Trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land. Don't run away. To the red states. Well, some people do that. That's okay, I guess. But um, dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Don't run and hide. Don't be afraid. Feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find joy and delight even in the midst of a bloodthirsty, tyrannical society where innocent blood is being shed left and right. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. And He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness. And so on and so forth. Uh, he, he says that the Lord Himself is laughing. And, and, and there's so much that could be said here, but you get the point. He's giving instructions to the people of God. How should we respond? You see, Satan's agenda is very clear. He wants us to be afraid. He wants us to be intimidated. He wants us to respond to what seem to us to be outward victories for the kingdom of darkness. He wants us to be anxious. He wants us to be defeatist and desperate. 
He wants us to overreact and to be extreme. David says, that is not God's agenda. That is not the godly response to the wicked prospering. If Proposal 3 is adopted and you respond with fear and trembling and desperation and extremism and defeatism and anxiety and intimidation, that's not the godly response, David says. But you need to be confident in the Lord. And David knows what it means to maintain his composure in this type of situation. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26. On multiple occasions, he had an opportunity to strike down this murderous, tyrannical King Saul. On multiple occasions, he had the opportunity to take the law into his own hand and to do the deed and take care of King Saul. And David's own life and the lives of his family members and the lives of many people in Israel, you could have argued they were at stake, but he doesn't kill the Lord's anointed. He doesn't take the law into his own hands. He says the sword of the Lord will be against him. He leaves place for the wrath of God Himself. And God blessed that. And David says, you need to follow in those footsteps in the midst of a wicked and perverse and tyrannical society. And the way that David provides encouragement here is by highlighting God's future blessing of the righteous. Of His people. Who of course are righteous through faith in God's promise through Christ. Even in the Old Testament, Justified by faith like Father Abraham. So God's going to, in the future, bless those that are righteous. And of course, all who are truly justified are going to work out their salvation in sanctification. And they're going to live upright, godly lives. And grow in grace. So God's future blessing of the righteous and His future cursing of the wicked. You can see this in verse 9 and following. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, again, the patient, the humble patient ones, as we sang in Psalm 37a, our, our Psalter selection, the humble patient ones, not taking it into our own hands, uh, but waiting on the Lord, as David did, they shall inherit the earth. So the evildoers cut off, cut down, but those who wait upon and trust in the Lord inherit the earth. Verse 10, for yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Same thing, verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance, their future blessing, in other words, shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, In the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. Literally, they shall have enough. That's what that word means. In the times of famine. It doesn't mean they're going to be living it up, but they're going to have enough. But, verse 20, the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, he says, like the smoke, they will vanish away. Verse 22, but those blessed by Him shall inherit the earth. You can see this throughout the psalm. God's future blessing on His people, those who are justified by faith and sanctified in righteousness, and God's future cursing of the wicked. He does it again and again. And actually in Hebrew, this psalm is an acrostic. So it takes the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and each section begins with a new letter uh, roughly in, in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, he, it, there's something almost of a poetic or wisdom literature character here with these almost proverbial statements. But he emphasizes this and repeats it again and again. Verse uh, 28, which we're focusing on, the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And then verse 37, Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So David is saying, be encouraged in the midst of a wicked and tyrannical corrupt society where the wicked are prospering. Be encouraged with a long-term perspective 
on the kingdom of God. A long-term future perspective on God's future blessing of the righteous and His future cursing of the wicked. You see, Satan would have us to be obsessed with the tyranny of the urgent. Proposal 3 passes, it's adopted, and immediately we're scurrying around and we're concerned and anxious and intimidated or we're overreacting and radicalized in various ways. But David's saying, hold on a second, you need a long-term perspective. God is winning and God will win and God will bring blessing for His people and He will bring judgment and cursing upon his enemies. Satan wants you to just be concerned with right now. God says, look at the long-term perspective. And according to David, these future blessings and cursings are manifested, this is very important, not merely or not only in eternity, but also in history. Very important that we don't look at Psalm 37 and say that the exclusive significance of these statements is that for all eternity in heaven, believers will enjoy peace and prosperity and communion with God. And for all eternity in hell, those who live in unbelief and disobedience will be cursed and will be tormented. Now that is true. And there is an element here that points ahead to the world to come where there are no wicked and they're they're gone. They're in hell. And the righteous inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come in perfect righteousness and peace. That's there. But you see, David is saying it's also true in history. He's saying, verse 25, from my own personal experience in my life, coming to the end of my life, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He's saying this is true in history, in providence. It's true, he says, even in my own life as I've watched the wicked sprout up and multiply in the land and then eventually they were judged and they were gone. He says it again even more clearly, verse 35, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. The wicked act as if this world is theirs. They're the native green tree. No, they're not. This, is, this, this world belongs to God who created it. This world has been willed and bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, He has inherited the nations. It is the church that is the native green tree. But the wicked, they rise to great power. He says, I've seen it. I've seen them spreading themselves that way. Yet He passed away. And behold, he was no more, and I sought him. Again, this is not speaking of the final judgment. He's saying this has already happened. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I sought him, but he could not be found. So according to David, these future blessings and cursings upon the righteous and the wicked, respectively, are not limited to eternity or to the final judgment, but they include God's providence in history. Very, very important. And according to this psalm, the primary mechanism for God's future providential blessings and cursings of the righteous and the wicked, the primary mechanism for that in history is by way of our offspring. It's by way of our children. And you see woven throughout this psalm the emphasis upon how God's blessing of the future of the righteous is through their seed, through their offspring, from generation to generation. God's cursing of the wicked is in their offspring, cutting them off from future posterity. Cursing them. Verse 26, speaking of the righteous, He is ever merciful and lends, and His descendants are blessed. The descendants of biblical Christians are blessed. That is a promise from Almighty God. We can get into the details, but just in general here, there's a promise of blessing upon future generations from generation to generation. And so God's kingdom grows and it survives the flash in the pan, advances of the kingdom in history, and it continues 
It has longevity. It has staying power through God's blessing upon our children. Verse 28, but uh, halfway through, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. God is in the business of blessing the children of His people and cursing the children of the wicked. Now it is true that some of the children of His people become wicked and some of the children of the wicked become His people. And, and this psalm is not denying that, but it's not really getting into the complexities of that aspect. What it's saying is the general rule is that one of the ways God rewards and blesses His people is by blessing their children and vice versa in cursing the wicked. And Psalm 37, uh, or Psalm 37, verse 37, says that the future of the godly man is peace. Verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. And it's through our offspring. And that's not surprising if we know our Bibles, because look at the Ten Commandments. Embedded right there in the Ten Commandments, when you, when you look at the Second Commandment, it involves God blessing the children, the offspring, the, the, unto a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commandments. And with respect to the wicked, those who hate Him, those who disobey Him, those that worship idols and violate the second commandment. Uh, we're told that the Lord visits the iniquity of the children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. We're even told in the fifth commandment with respect to honoring authority and honoring our parents that one of the blessings upon our children when they respect and honor their father and mother is that their days will be long in the land which the Lord our God is giving us. That promise is repeated in Ephesians chapter 6 and it represents once again this same theme of God blessing the future of His people through their children and cursing the future of the wicked by cutting off their offspring. You see a similar paradigm in Exodus 34-7 when God reveals His glorious name to Moses. He, he speaks of the same intergenerational method of blessing and cursing through our offspring. And in fact, when God sets forth His covenant to Israel under Moses and sets forth the blessings and curses that are implied in that covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 28, listen to what it says beginning in verse 4. I'm just going to jump around here. This is a very sizable chapter, but I want to show you how God includes our offspring in His blessings and curses upon the nation of Israel, which of course from other Scriptures we know is a general pattern for His dealings with every nation in terms of their obedience and disobedience. Deuteronomy 28.4 Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. And he's saying that these blessings come, verse 1, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So if you're obedient and believing, blessed shall be the fruit of your body. Verse 11, and the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body. Verse 18, moving now to the curses for disobedience. Verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your body if you disobey the Lord, if you refuse to carefully observe His commands. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. And then in verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long and there shall be no strength in your hand. It's a curse upon our children if we're disobedient. Verse 41, You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Verse 63, And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you, listen to the way this is worded, just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, see, doing good is in, inclusive here of multiplying us, giving us offspring, giving us a future posterity. Just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. 
Now, there's more to that chapter that deals with our offspring, but I'm going to leave it there for just a moment and just remind us what we saw this morning. The Constitution of Michigan, ratified in 1963. Remember the preamble we saw this morning. We, the people of the state of Michigan, grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. So the people, even the people in 1963, not a particular high point in in our country or in our state, uh, but they're grateful to Almighty God. We saw this morning that Governor Whitmer actually was sworn into office with her hand on a family Bible, Christian Bible. So I think it's fair to say historically we can take the reference to Almighty God as a reference to the God of the Bible. But in any event, our state is recognizing here that God Himself has given us the blessings of freedom and we want to see those blessings secured and passed on undiminished to our posterity. So even the state of Michigan recognizes the very same state of Michigan where people are trying to put an amendment to guarantee the right to destroy our posterity, to take away the most basic liberty, which is life itself. They're saying, let's amend that Constitution to murder our posterity. But the preamble says, we want to pass along the blessing of freedom undiminished to our posterity. Any way you slice it, even our Constitution recognizes that God's future providential blessings and cursings come by way of offspring. They come by way of offspring. And one way which God cuts off the future offspring and influence of the wicked is by removing natural affection. Giving over the wicked to destroy themselves. And you see this in many instances. For instance, In the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 22, when Gideon and his 300 are fighting against the Midianites, we're told, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerarah as far as the border of Abel Mahala by Tabith. And that's obviously a mouthful, but the point, you get the point. Uh, They blew the trumpets and the Lord set His enemies against each other. Their sword was against each other. They were destroying themselves. They were killing themselves. They lost that natural affection they would normally have to their fellow countrymen, to their fellow soldiers, and they killed and destroyed themselves. In fact, this is included in Psalm 83. In the imprecatory prayer against God's enemies. Deal with them as with Midian. So this is something in principle that God's people are to expect God to do to give over His enemies, the wicked, to a loss of natural affection to murder and kill themselves. Indeed, He prays, deal with them as with Midian. Unless somebody say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 in prophesying the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're familiar with verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Prophecy of Christ. But are we familiar with verse 4? For you have broken the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, as in the day of Midian. How is it that King Jesus is going to defeat His enemies and establish peace? Part of it is this day of Midian, turning impenitent, wicked sinners even against themselves. And of course, perhaps the most unthinkable form of that is abortion, where people who are not biblical Christians murder not just their own fellow soldiers or their own countrymen, but their own flesh and blood, their own babies. And Romans 1 tells us That this is the case, that God in a righteous judgment against His enemies, against those who reject Him and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, 
We're told, verse 29 of Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness. He's giving them over to these things. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. He gives them over to murder. And then in verse 31, undeserving, uh, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. Unloving. Literally, without natural affection. And the word conveys the idea of the natural affection that you would have for your family or for your children. God is saying, if you suppress my truth in unrighteousness, I will give you over to a self-destructive bloodlust for your own people, your own family, even your own flesh and blood. And I said we'd go back to Deuteronomy 28. Listen to what it says in verse 53. When Israel, or in a sense generally, when any nation rebels to such an extreme extent against the living God, listen to what it says, Deuteronomy 28.53, you shall eat the fruit of your own body. There's some directions we would go with that, but we're not going to go there in today's uh, world. But, you shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. Listen, the sensitive and very refined man among you. We have a lot of those. We have a lot of men who claim to be sensitive and refined here in the state of Michigan. The sensitive and refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother toward the wife of his bosom and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates, the tender and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity, will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you at all your gates. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Uh, He goes on, verse 62, you shall be left few in number, depopulation, you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of the heaven in multitude because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. My dear friends, these things represent God's future, even ongoing judgment of His enemies. And abortion is part and parcel of that judgment. At face value, it's impossible to deny. Abortion is providentially self-defeating. Over the long haul, of course, we oppose Proposal 3 with every fiber of our being. Please don't think in any way what I'm saying this evening undercuts what we said this morning. We fight it tooth and nail in a lawful, biblical way, voting it down, warning people against it, giving to causes that would try to get the word out and persuade people. We do everything we can to spare lives and save souls, but... Over the long haul, we're not intimidated by abortion. We're not intimidated by God's enemies allowing themselves to murder their own offspring and cut off their own future. We grieve that it's evil. We're grieved that it offends God and that it is cruel against babies. We are not afraid of it. And we will not be motivated to radicalism because of desperation in light of it. It is self-defeating. God is going to win this battle one way or the other. He's either going to shoot down the proposal or they're going to shoot themselves down with the proposal. One way or the other. God wins. And you can see this getting back to Psalm 37. 
This is what David is using to encourage us. Verse 13, well, let's look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. For he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart. I know it's painful to say, but it's entering their own womb. The children that are being murdered, by definition, are being murdered by people that are murdering their children. So by definition, this is cutting off the the future and the offspring of the wicked. Now, I recognize we evangelize people and we want to see wicked people converted and so on and so forth. But at that moment, when someone is killing their baby, they show themselves to be the wicked whom God is judging through this process. And we're told that their sword enters their own heart as it were their own womb and their bows shall be broken. Abortion is self-defeating. When Israel was multiplying in the land of Egypt beyond belief, I mean, they went from 70 people to over a million in a very short space of time. And a Pharaoh comes to the throne who doesn't know Joseph, and he's threatened, he's concerned. God's people are multiplying. The Hebrews are are rapidly reproducing. What are we going to do about this? And his solution is, We're going to murder Egyptian babies. No. Why did Pharaoh not do that? Because that would not make any sense if you're trying to win a culture war against the Hebrews to kill the Egyptian babies. No. He wants to keep God's people from multiplying. He wants to throw the children, the sons of God's people, into the Nile. What sense would it make? Even an unconverted, wicked wretch like Pharaoh would not be so foolish as to think that he has a long-term victory plan by murdering his own children. That does not make any sense. And we see in Psalm 37 that we can expect that the wicked, through their foolishness, will shoot themselves in the foot. And God gives them over to this evil for that very purpose, to accomplish His victory. Now, with that said, Psalm 37 tells us that by definition, the righteous are good. That means generous, sympathetic, compassionate. The righteous are righteous. They're just. The law of God is on their tongue. They're meditating on it. They're speaking it. They love the law of God. They are merciful. They, by definition, Take no pleasure in the death of the wicked or in the death of the offspring of the wicked. Perish the thought. That is not in any sense in the purview of Psalm 37 or anywhere else in the Bible. The righteous are merciful. They're good. They're generous. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse 26, the righteous is ever merciful. And lends. He's generous. He's helping people in need. He doesn't want to see anybody slaughtered, innocent blood shed. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood even as God hates them. Takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or in the death of their offspring. But rather, He is actively seeking in mercy to spare lives, to save souls, to advance the cause of justice and of the law of God. That law of God, verse 31, that is in His heart, None of his steps shall slide. So we need to be very clear in recognizing the self-destructive nature of abortion and of Proposal 3 that virtually guarantees one way or the other that Satan's kingdom will fail, God's kingdom will advance either way. Nevertheless, let's not be confused about this. That God is holy. And if we are truly His saints, as we read of in verse 28... He does not forsake His saints. If we truly are His saints, then we love what He loves, we hate what He hates, and we are grieved. The same David who wrote this wrote Psalm 119 and said, streams of tears flow from my eyes because the wicked break your law. So we don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We try to stop people from engaging in self-destructive behavior. We try to stop them. We try to see them by the grace of God brought from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
Because we care about those little babies in the womb and we care about those murderous mothers and fathers who are on their way to hell. We don't want them to go there. We don't want them to be in the place prepared for the devil and his angels. We want them to be transferred into Christ's kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. We want them to be transformed. We, we have mercy. We take no pleasure in evil. But, recognizing these things, God's people need not be angry. Now, angry at the sin, I understand Jesus was angry in a righteous sense, but in the sense of Psalm 37, we need not be consumed with anger and rage. We need not be consumed with fear, desperation and despair and intimidation and anxiety. We need not be overwhelmed with these things. And that is the point of Psalm 37. God is laughing at the idea that Proposal 3 is going to effectively, over the long term, advance the cause of people that are murdering their babies. God laughs at that idea. He doesn't laugh that babies are murdered. He laughs at the idea that that strategy, that that policy will have success over the long term. And we ought to laugh at that idea as well. And as we seek to have a balanced biblical perspective, as we seek to be confidently trusting in the Lord, dwelling in the land, feeding on His faithfulness, even in times of famine, we have enough. The Lord provides. We delight ourselves in Him. We look ahead to the eternal weight of glory. And we watch His providential victory plan unfold before our very eyes. And we commit our way to the Lord, trusting that He will bring it to pass. And as we do that, As we do that, recognizing God's sovereignty and human responsibility, as we do that, we need to remember that our grief at the evil of abortion must never reduce our joy in Christ's victory. Do not let the devil steal your joy. Our grief at the evil of abortion must never reduce our joy in Christ's victory. Victory, but our joy in Christ's victory must never reduce our grief at the evil of abortion. Think about that. We need to be rejoicing in the Lord, confident that He is accomplishing His will, building His church, advancing His kingdom, and that these wicked plans are short lived. They're like smoke that will vanish. People are going to look for these types of Wicked, evil agendas at a certain point and they're not even going to be anywhere. They're all going to be extinguished, cut off, depopulated. But we don't stop grieving at the evil of abortion. We're not hyper-Calvinists that say, oh well, I guess if God's ordained this as a judgment, therefore, who cares if babies are murdered? They're just the babies of wicked people. Oh, my friends, God says, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. He hates it morally. We ought to grieve over it morally. But He laughs at it providentially and we ought to rejoice in His victory providentially. It's an easy sort of a cop-out to just choose one of these things and run with it. But we need both. We need both. We need balance. And I think we see that balance just in closing In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on something that's actually far more serious than people losing their physical lives. Romans 11, Paul, really in chapters 9-11, through he's reflecting on the fact that when Christ came to His own, the Jewish people, His own rejected Him. They did not receive Him. And for the most part, though He labored to see them converted. His prayer to God for Israel was that they may be saved. Uh, He at one point even wished that he himself would be accursed for Israel, that they would have salvation through Christ if that were possible. So he's wrestling with this fact that the Jews rejected and most of them in the first century went to hell because they didn't trust in Christ. But that opened a way for the Gentiles 
to be brought into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. The door was shut on Israel. It was open and expanded to the Gentile nations. And Paul is dealing with God's providential judgments, shutting the door on the Jews, opening the door for the Gentiles. And then through the witness of the Gentiles, through the Great Commission, eventually regrafting the great bulk of Jews, which we hope for in the future, regrafting them into the olive tree as natural branches regrafted into the people of God through faith in Christ. As he's reflecting on this, the fact that in God's providence, people didn't just lose their lives, they lost their eternity in unbelief so that God could bring others into the kingdom. And and eventually so that there could be this salvation of Israel as a whole. But he's reflecting upon these issues of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility with respect to eternal destiny. I just want to read this, verse 30 of Romans 11. He says, For as you were once disobedient to God, Gentiles, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. How would you like to to think about that? That you're one of these Gentiles in the Roman church here that Paul's writing to, and he's saying the reason that you've obtained mercy providentially is because other people went to hell and rejected it and now the Gospel's come to you. Think of the weight of what he's saying here. We don't take these things lightly. You've now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, so as God saves a church dominated by Gentile believers, as God saves you, they also may obtain mercy through the Great Commission going back to the Jews. For God has committed them all to disobedience. In other words, first the Gentiles, then the Jews, to open the way for the Gentiles, to open the way for the Jews. He's committed them all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. And what is Paul's response? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I hope that's our response. If proposal 3 passes... I hope we are grieved at the reality morally and experientially for those whose lives are destroyed by this. But I hope at the same time we can give praise and honor to God who is working it for good, for the advancement of His kingdom, for His victory on earth in history against those whose future is being cut off in His providence. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, There is a greater distance between you and us than there is between us and a flea. And yet we know that your word is true. We can't fully comprehend these things, but we do put our trust in the Lord, desiring to feed on your faithfulness. We know that when you see the nations of the world conspiring against you and against your anointed, you sit enthroned in the heavens and you laugh. Not laughing at evil, but laughing at the prospect that evil would overcome good. O oh Lord, give us that confidence of Psalm 37. Even as we sing a portion of it here in a moment, we pray, write it upon our hearts. And we do pray that many lives would be spared and many souls saved. And many who are in the kingdom of darkness brought into the kingdom of the light of Your beloved Son that they and their offspring unto a thousand generations would worship and praise You, our great God and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.